Hello everyone, I'm Kate Braug and this is The Pivotal Moment. Together we will talk to 100 of the most inspiring and powerful women entrepreneurs in New York. They will tell us about what it takes to set up your own company, how to be the architect of your own career and how they are reshaping the business world. I'm an entrepreneur myself and I'm looking forward to hearing their stories along with you. She's a philanthropist, an artist, a mother and a model. She's not an entrepreneur in the conventional sense, but rather a social entrepreneur. In 2012, Choi Chung Lung started the Young Girl Project, a nonprofit organization seeking to make the world a better place by battling child sexual abuse. With autobiographical cartoon-like drawings of naked little girls, Choi illustrates that battle. As an artist, Choi was the assistant to the visionary pop artist Peter Max, and over the course of her life explored a range of crafts such as metalworking, woodworking, music, and silversmithing. Ever so stunning at 52, Choi recently signed with Elite Model Management. Originally from Wales, she moved all over the world, Beijing, Hong Kong, Germany, London, and eventually New York, all the while raising her only daughter. And today, she is a guest with us on this episode of The Pivotal Moment. Choi, thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. You started the Young Girl Project. What made you want to do this? A personal experience. I had, you know, experienced uh, sexual abuse as a child and for many years struggled with uh, confronting that reality. And I think doing artwork was my form of communication that allowed me to survive and inevitably like thrive in processing those emotions and memories that came up. And um, in 2012, I was doodling girls' heads, which I'd always done over the years. And a friend saw me and said, what are you doing? And I just said, oh, just doodles. Usually I would throw them away. They'd be on receipts and envelopes. And they said, just why don't you continue? And I was sort of shocked at the suggestion that I should do cartoons, not abstract art. But there was also a fear in being so, really talking about it publicly. Because when you draw something so literal, it's not hidden in the abstract. And so um, that's where the project started. Right. So that was the beginning. And the name of our podcast is The Pivotal Moment. So I want to ask you if there was one specific moment that made you decide to really go for it. And I mean that one pivotal moment you can remember that made you realize that you were the one to do this. Um, yes, I started sharing my artwork on Instagram. And I noticed a lot of younger kids and younger adults were following me. And, you know, it's a really nice way of getting work out there that wasn't being seen in galleries and directly to that generation. And I started having people DM me and sharing their stories or asking for advice or saying this artwork impacted me immensely and continue because it really helped them. And subsequently, a girl contacted me on Instagram and wanted to meet for coffee and she told me about her being abused by a teacher in school when she was eight. And through that conversation, she then decided to report it to the police. And that report, even though she, you know, she wasn't looking to um, do any legal action, that report basically also brought on a, another girl that corroborated her evidence. And the school teacher was removed from the education system. And um, she had to deal with, even though she's still anonymous, there were a lot of people that were supporting him, calling her a liar. And these are the issues and problems that a lot of kids and young adults are facing without, you know, even because, you know, someone like him had entrenched himself in the community as a very outstanding citizen. 
and she was labeled as you know the troublemaker and the liar so but right now it's it's a case and that to me is you know the project doing its job you know he won't be able to you know hopefully harm another kid that's amazing so the drawings you make for the young girl project are these cartoon like drawings of naked young girls are those girls you? It's autobiographical. I mean, the emotions and feelings and stories uh, that come out in the drawings are from my experience. Do those experiences still play an active role in your life? They don't control me subconsciously anymore. Or let me say they control me less. Yeah, you'll never be able to erase or completely um, take away your past. But there is a, there is a point that I feel I passed where it didn't affect my present as much you know it didn't control my emotions or bring me down you know and creating the young girl project what was the purpose of it the main purpose is to raise awareness 95% of child sexual abuse can be prevented by awareness according to the uh, Lawrence Kids Foundation and I felt that with my drawing the the most effective tool I had was visual communication. And where do you start with raising that awareness? Is that communicating with the children themselves or is that communicating with the parents or does it start in schools with teachers? Where do you start? We came to the conclusion that it's the caretakers that we have to enroll to be protectors. So caretakers could be anyone from older siblings, babysitters, parents, teachers, social workers you know it's like the people that are the gatekeepers to the children because children don't have access to the social media that i'm using uh, in order to show the work or the website is not always easily accessible to a young child at five six years old so it would be enrolling the adults or older teens to start this conversation during those awareness campaigns there will be people who realize that someone they know is a victim of sexual abuse what should they do? Well, if they know a child is being sexually abused, then if it's possible to remove the child from the personal situation that is putting that child at risk. If it's not possible to do that, it would be to raise concerns with teachers, social workers, and police who can assess and help protect the children from further abuse. Even making a statement to the police would red flag that child or person to people. If people want to avoid you know, legal cases, you can still report or make a statement. And if that person is a serial abuser and another person also reports, you're creating corroboration, you know, and that's the thing with child abuse, whether you come out as a child, people will maybe not believe what you're saying. And as an adult, they'll not believe what you're saying either, if there's no proof dating back to the time it occurred, you know. So I think corroboration is the main proof that people would need to move forward and remove a person who is doing this. Right, because it's such a sensitive topic. So I can understand that it's a very sensitive thing to approach. Yeah. What are your future plans for the organization? I would like the organization to have raised the level of conversation on this issue by creating awareness campaigns, and not just in this country, and where it would be normal and commonplace to talk to kids this way and not something that's held in secrecy or embarrassing. And it won't be easy because a lot of abuse happens within the family unit and children and adults have to contend with being shunned and ostracized by their families and communities for speaking out. My hopes is this will be achieved in some way through the um, awareness campaigns or at least creating a community which supports victims and gives them that sense of family. You just mentioned that most sexual abuse is actually done within the family unit. How do you get a child 
to talk about sexual abuse because it's such a personal topic and it's so close to home. How do they open up? You know, when it happens, you don't know what is right or wrong as a child because you're taught to listen to adults, do as you're told. And until you get older, you don't have that sense of knowing something is wrong. And I hear that all the time from people that come forward as adults. It's like, well, why didn't you stop it earlier? You hear people saying, well, a child doesn't know what is wrong or right in that moment. You just deal with your life thinking that is normal life, you know? So you've experienced abuse when you were a child. When did you start opening up about it? Um, well, I'd always had specific memories that I had always thought were odd. And I'd walked around with this feeling of something didn't feel right, but I couldn't access or process that feeling or understand that feeling. From a young age, I was very emotionally cut off. I couldn't understand, you know, my fellow classmates who had this euphoric reaction to certain things. I was very, almost like emotionally, like a flat line. You know, I never got super happy and I never got super sad. It was, and I always did wonder about that, especially when you start dating at a young age and... I never fell into these intense feelings. And as I got older, there was certain memories that just always came back over the years. And in hindsight, I kind of go, why did that not come across as super strange and weird? But it was the normalization that had occurred within me that was normal to me. And then when I had my daughter, I was around 30 years old, 29 years old. She was around two years old and I started getting flashbacks and intense emotions that were coming up that made no sense to me. Very panicked feeling and depression. And I think I was told once I reached out to get help that it usually occurs, memories, flashbacks, at the age you were when you were first abused and your child reminds you of yourself in that moment. That was the beginning of starting the journey to discover what happened. Is part of that process also confronting the person who did it? That is part of uh, the process of healing, if you're able to do that. Were you? No. One person was a man that worked in the Chinese restaurant, and he passed away before I could confront him. It would have been great if you could have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I do think that I was not the only... Well, I know he, I was not the only person that he, uh, he sexually abused. Joy, back to the organization itself. In what stage is the organization? Are you raising funds? Are you looking for anything in particular? Well, right now I have fiscal sponsorship through Fractured Atlas and currently looking for a third board member to complete the um, 501c3 nonprofit status. So I'm looking for a person, you know, with passion for the cause and also experience in business and fundraising, etc. So that is probably the where I'm at right now. And um, I'm doing that with VLA, which is Volunteer Lawyer for the Arts. And uh, one of the board members is Joseph Tadeshi, who's on that board, and he's a lawyer. So he's very, um, he's volunteering, very helpful with uh, moving this process along. And Joy, your background is in art. You're an artist. Shifting from art into entrepreneurship or being a social entrepreneur, what is the most challenging thing about setting up a nonprofit organization for you personally? The, the most challenging thing has been setting up a structure and mission that is like an arrow on a bullseye to the problem. So a lot of work has been put into researching and 
analyzing the problem and looking at what similar nonprofits are doing and how ours can be different and also help those nonprofits. So the idea was not to contend with existing nonprofits, but support and refer people to them. So an online information hub seemed like the best way to do that. And I've been um, doing that with uh, my volunteer, Lindsay Caban, who did so much great work in terms of analyzing. And effectiveness of the nonprofit is very important to me. So having goals backed up by action and action seeing results and solutions to the problem. So when opportunities or collaborations come up, I do ask, does this align with the purpose at hand? And if so, I move ahead. If it doesn't, I don't. Joy, over to your personal life. You're originally from Wales, and although you've lived all over the world, you luckily never lost your accent. Um, <laughs> you grew up in a Chinese-English family, um, a family of seven in the UK. What was it like growing up in Wales? What drove you to leave the UK and travel all over the world? Growing up in Wales, it was there's five siblings, you know, five of us, and we owned a Chinese takeaway. So we were that Chinese family <laughs> who supplied the food for the city we were in or the village we were in. And there were not many Chinese families at that time. This was in the 70s. So, you know, growing up was a challenge in a mixed race family in British culture. We had to deal with racism as well as a home life where culturally we were expected to act Chinese inside the home. But as soon as we left the house, we were exposed to a completely different opposing culture. It was not easy. At the same time, Wales is a beautiful country and like nature is abundant. And I was raised on an island not far from the Snowdonia Mountains. So it's a magical land the way I see it. So there was so many good things about being raised in Wales and the people and the influences I had growing up. Um, with friends and the exposure to many different types of people. Wales was full of communes at that time and students from all over the world came to Bangor University where our restaurant was. Lots of music which was on the college circuit come through. So there was a lot of great things about it and a lot of challenging things. When I left at 17, I had to go to college to study metalwork. If I could, I would have left at 12 years old. <laughs> I was like on a mission, very young, to leave home, get away from, you know, the get away from this feeling of being controlled or restricted. And I remember going to Hong Kong at 11 years old in the late 70s, I think it's 79. And to me, it was like, that's when I decided I'll be leaving this country. And then after that, it was really just whatever opportunities came up, you know, I would, I would just say yes. And saying yes brought you all over the world because you've lived in Beijing, in Hong Kong, Germany, London, and eventually New York. Which of those places resonated most with you and why? China, whether it's Beijing or Hong Kong, that culture had always been absent in my upbringing. It had been not experienced. It was something I knew I was half Chinese, but you know, living in England, it was not experienced on a total level. So I think going to Hong Kong as a child, that was definitely the most impactful experience. The sensory overload I felt from that place, the sound, touch, smell, food, everything was so colorful and vibrant. And Chinese culture is a very deep and unbroken culture. So I learned Kung Fu, I learned Chinese music, I immersed myself in that and it influenced, it influenced a lot. But eventually you ended up in New York and you stayed. You never went back to China. Yes, I 
came here on a holiday, really, and I went, oh, I like this place. It's fast. It felt like it was my speed. I was living in London at the time, and um, I liked it, and I did stay, yeah. And during your time here in New York in 1994, you started working as the assistant to the visionary pop artist Peter Max, which is a big deal because he was one of the biggest artists of his time and brought this new level of originality to the art world. What did you learn from working with Peter Max? At the time, I wasn't aware of this, but looking back, I can see that I learned a lot from observing him and how art can be made available to anyone. Because I think how he, in the 70s, through his prints and licensing, and he was in every person's bedroom in the form of a poster or a bag or a t-shirt. And the way he made art viral before social media and his reach and influence in that time was unmatchable. In hindsight, I can look at that and take a lot of inspiration from it. In the moment I was working for him, I didn't understand the achievements so much of what he was doing. I was working with his artwork and just doing my job. But I think I was not really understanding how much I could learn. And how closely did you work with him? Um, well, it was interesting. I met him in a line for a movie on the Upper West Side. So I got to know him outside of the work at first. You know, he he just we just started chatting as we were waiting for popcorn, you know. And he offered me his card and said, I'm an artist. And he knew I was an artist. So he said, come by the studio. So he had a lot of people working for him. And I worked mainly with his sketches and, you know, creating licensing ideas or just redrawing stuff. You know, it was part of the art department. But I got to say, without him, I would not have been able to continue pursuing my own art. My personal experience is he treated me very well. Without his flexibility regarding work, I would not have been able to continue raising my daughter and doing my own work because he allowed me to bring her into work. I was also able to work from home when I needed to. And when I moved to Germany to work on a music project I was doing there, he would send freelance work to me that I could do there. And I sent back with FedEx to New York. So He gave me the means to work for him and pursue my own art. And for that, I, I would say I'm forever grateful, you know. It's quite refreshing to hear this, actually, because Peter Max does have a reputation for being quite an unusual person. Yeah, I can only talk about my experience. And that's my experience. He facilitated me to continue my art. And I believe that that facilitation is also what has took me to the Young Girl Project. You know, without those years of being able to practice, I wouldn't be where I am now, you know. You just mentioned raising your daughter while working with Peter Max. Um, and I want to shift to motherhood for a second, because you've raised your daughter as a single mother. And while raising her, you've traveled all over the world. How did you manage that? Well, she was a very easy baby. I always say, you know, she never cried when she was young, but I'm a very deep sleeper. So maybe she did. And I just didn't hear her. But like, but you know, I would be working on a painting and she would easily just sit next to me on the floor working on her own work. So I was very, very lucky to have a kid that was also creative and also got lost in her own head, you know, it's like, you know, it was difficult, but I didn't do it alone. Even, you know, you say I didn't, she didn't have a father that was in her life financially or physically, but I did have friends and I had great friends that supported me and helped me in all those ways. And without them, I would not have been able to have done the traveling or had those experiences. So I think when I think of raising her, I, I do think of the family, my own chosen family that was around me that helped me with this. 
And your daughter is a model. Uh, she signed with Elite. And at 51, you recently also signed as a model with Elite Model Management. You're, it's a bit of a shame we don't have a camera here because you're obviously a stunning woman. But how did you get into modeling? How did you get signed with Elite? Well, my daughter got signed and a job came up for a mother-daughter shoot. I think that was with Proenza Schuller, I think a film. And uh, they cast me in Sahara to work together on this. And that's how it started. I actually did sign with Elite just not long ago. It was last summer. So I was 51 years old and never done modeling before then. I was always just doing art. So it was weird. Mm. <laughs> um so that's how I got signed. It was it was really because of my daughter doing the mother-daughter shoot and then people seeing what I was doing and Elite also supporting what I was doing. But what is it like to do a modeling gig with your daughter? Well, I saw another side of her because, you know, you, you have a kid and I relate to her at home and, you know, do this, do that, take out the garbage and then catching up this way. But in working with her, I saw how she was and I was kind of blown away how... She was like a different character on set, very communicative, advocating for herself. She was, yeah, it was interesting. I saw another side of her character, which was, it was a good thing, yeah. Joy, looking back on your life up to now, what would you have done differently? Until recently, I would have said no, <laughs> because I believe that change in the past would be not accepting or valuing my present moment. Right. I was kind of expecting you to say that, but now you're yeah, not. Yeah, but... Ahead. You know, in having conversations with people, I think recently I would say, yeah, it would have been nice not to have gone through so many hard lessons or experiences and to have laughed and enjoyed life more. There were years of very deep, where I was very unhappy. And so looking at myself then to now, I see a massive change. Would I prefer not to have gone through it? Yes. But do I value the, the lessons that came from that? Yes, also. And how did you get over those moments of depression and struggle? Uh, I had to work hard in therapy to address past and learned to see negative emotions as like a muscle. And if you keep thinking about it, the muscle gets stronger and harder. And if you can replace those negatives with positive thoughts, you can minimize the control it has over you. So it was really, um, yeah, a lot of reading and a lot of self-work, you know. We just look back and thought about what we would have done differently. Now let's look into the future and I want to ask you, what do you still want wow, to achieve? lots of things. <laughs> There's so many. I have like a, an Evernote wish list of all these projects. <laughs> you know, if I get to do 2%, I'll be totally happy. I mean, I'd like to finish this comic book that I'm doing, which is to raise awareness with young children. I'd like to finish the documentary that's in the works. I'd like to work on a, a film, I mean, or animation. Things that have to do with the Young Girl Project. Yeah. And the, the achievement on the end, you know, on the end goal would be to have this issue to be something that's talked about in a very non-shameful way. Everyday conversation that kids say no, defy authority. Kids listen to their gut. Kids listen to themselves, advocate. These are all attributes that work well for you later on in life, too. You know, if I can help one kid get away from a, an abusive situation, I've achieved something. The project has achieved its goal. Joy, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? <laughs> dead or alive. This may sound strange, but my father was adopted and I don't know his parents. And I think I would be curious to know 
and sit down and have dinner with them because in my family, we all have very different traits, but artistic. And I'm curious to know what they did, who they were, because genetically we carry traits from our ancestors or our relatives that we, you know, even if it's physical attributes or whatever, I think um, in a way it would be connecting with that. I can think of other situations, but I think that was my biggest curiosity. Greatest accomplishment so far? My kid. If you're going to be a creator, I mean, that's creation, right? <laughs> so, and the Young Girl Project. Coming to that point where I feel I found my purpose with the artwork where it has a life beyond just drawing. It has a means of communication with people. That gives me a lot of satisfaction. Joy, thank you so much for being here today and thank you for opening up so truthfully about such a sensitive topic. Thank you for inviting me. For everyone at home, thank you so much for downloading this episode of The Pivotal Moment. If you've enjoyed it, please feel free to share it with anyone you know or someone you think will enjoy it too. I'm looking forward to meeting with you again on the next episode of The Pivotal Moment podcast.